0: So we're in uh, Psalm 119 this morning, Psalm 119 again as we are continuing our series through the longest chapter uh, in the scriptures, Uh, hold on, sorry, Uh, my iPad keeps turning off, (laughs) don't want that to happen, Uh, excuse me, there we go, okay. Uh, we're going through the longest chapter, Psalm 119, 176 verses. And um, really, as I was looking ahead and looking at today's stanza, which is stanza number 3, which starts in verse 17, um, but, and then looking even ahead to the other stanzas, it was it, it struck me just how kind of monotonous this chapter is. And I hope that doesn't like <laughs> discourage you, uh, but I hope it actually kind of encourages you, because there's even though uh, David uses so many different words, so many different images, so many different ways to describe the Word of God and what it means to him and what he's learning through it, there's this sort of variety in monotony there. Um, He's really belaboring the point of what should be the foundation of the Christian life, which is the Word of God. And it's something that I think for me, uh, I need constantly. Uh, There's so many, as I told you I think a couple weeks ago, it's so easy to... Get away from the scriptures and just try and rely on yourself in order to get through each and every single day. To uh, wake up in the morning and check your phone or turn on the news or whatever you do in the morning before you enter the word of God. It's so easy to do that. And I'm preaching to myself because it's so easy to just to get into a routine and you don't make time to dedicate yourself to consecrate the next day, even the next hour, to the Lord. And I think such is what David is trying to do through this psalm. He's trying to uh, really encourage his own heart in life to make this scripture the preeminent foundation of his entire life, of his thoughts, his words, his actions. And so uh, And he has to do that constantly. You'll notice, let me just read today's stanza, uh, verse 17 down through verse 24. He says, Deal bountifully with thy servant, that I may live And keep thy word. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. Thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed, which do err from thy commandments. Remove me from reproach and contempt, for I have kept thy testimonies princes also did sit and speak against me but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors you notice again as we've been kind of pointing out each time each verse it seems has a new word for god's word a new way to describe it he says in verse one he calls it thy word and then in verse 18 thy law the next verse thy commandments and the next verse, thy judgments, commandments again in verse 21, and testimonies in 22. And then statutes in 23, and delight in counselors are the testimonies of God in verse 24. As we've seen, he, you get the sense that he's just just trying. He's overwhelmed with trying to describe what the word means to him. He is just overcome with this idea that the word of God, as we mentioned last time, two weeks ago now, uh, that the word of God is unceasingly relevant. It always has something to say to him. It always has something to say to us. Regardless of what season of life we are in, what phase of our lives we are entering, regardless of the moment we are perhaps even enduring right now, the, the Word of God, not just the Psalms, but the Word of God in general in in total has something to say to us. It's suitable for every single season. It speaks to us in all of our times. And there's no circumstance that God's Word cannot speak to us to relieve us, to comfort us, to alleviate us from stress or pain or pressure or, 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 or suffering. And I was, I was thinking, I, I imagine David, as he's recording this psalm, it's not, I don't, I, maybe you think of it this way, but I don't, I don't think that David just sat down and just wrote out 176 verses just in one sitting. I I sort of think about this, that he's coming back to it constantly. Like it's over the course of months or years, perhaps, or even decades, that he keeps going back to this idea that the Word of God is his resource, it's his resort, it's his comfort, it's his recourse, it's the place he goes to for refuge and so in each uh, moment of life, he would go back and uh, he would be struck by a new truth. By, struck by something that's speaking to him in that moment. Uh, that's kind of how I think of it. So really, you could see this as sort of a moment-by-moment moment learning of David that the Word of God is sufficient. He's learning throughout the course of his entire life that the Word is his sufficiency. One writer says it like this. He says, God, in other words, is the eternal contemporary of every moment of my times. Accordingly, there is no moment of them that is ever lost to him. And consequently, no single briefest scrap of my life that is not as he holds it safely ensconced in eternity. That's what David's learning. That, that every single moment of his life, he has someone that is right there with him. It's God Himself who's holding His life, as this writer says, ensconced in eternity, in the power of His sovereignty. He's holding David. And I think such is what David is kind of speaking to in this stanza forth this morning. He's leading, he's asking God to consider His condition. He says, it's almost as if you can see Him through these verses here this morning saying, Consider me, consider where I am, God. And such is why he asks right at the very beginning, deal bountifully with thy servant. See where I am, remember me, God, and deal bountifully with me. Deal bountifully, bless you, deal bountifully with your servant. You'll notice this prayer, deal bountifully, is sort of a repeated prayer of the psalmist. Look in verse 65, he says something very similar. He says, "Thou hast dealt well with thy servant, O Lord." Excuse me. According unto thy word, he repeats the same prayer in one sixteen, Psalm one sixteen, verse seven. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet. Oh, excuse me. That's one fifteen. Sorry, one sixteen, verse seven. The Lord preserveth the simple. I was brought low, and He helped me. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with thee. It's a prayer he repeats because he knows that when he prays for the Lord to deal bountifully with him, he is asserting what God has already done. He knows that God has dealt well with him. And really, I love the picture of these two words deal bountifully. Now, it just doesn't mean an abundance of grace or abundance of mercy or favor. Uh, Really, the intent of these words is actually uh, sort of embrace me as if you are a nursing mother weaning an infant. Has that type of closeness, that type of intimacy is what he's praying for. Cherish me, comfort me in the warmth of your embrace, God, that I may live because he's not just a servant. Yes, he is, but he is God's child, and he says, "Nurse me as a nurse, a mother nurses their infant." And what better closeness could there be to picture? What could better closeness could there be uh, than that of a little infant nursing at his mother? This is the intimacy that he's desiring of his God. He's praying this way because he knows. The situation he's in. He knows the hard circumstances that his life uh, uh, has for him. And he knows that this word is the only thing that can get him through that life. Such is why he's praying that this word would be like that nursing mother to him. This is why he's praying for just a deeper acquaintance, that fuller, stronger intimacy and comprehension of the word. This is what he's striving for. This is what he's saying, I need this. Deal bountifully with me that I may live, that I may persist in this life. One commentator, Charles Bridges, who has an excellent commentary on this chapter, he says, Acquaintance with the word of God supplies the place of friends and counselors and furnishes light, joy, strength, food, armor, and whatever else he may need on his way homewards. That's what I think he's praying for. That this word would become all of those things to him. That regardless of whether things may go away, friends may fall, uh, whether he uh, suffers want or whether he is in a season of darkness, he's praying that the word would be his light, his sustenance, his uh, ever-present companion and counselor. And these are the things which David is clinging to right here in this stanza. And such, I think, is what we should cling to, too, in our lives. I think this morning, quickly... There's sort of three seasons I kind of see here, which David is praying to God that this word of God would be for him. It's seasons, I think, that we all endure, that we all face, that we are all familiar with. So in verses 17 through 19, I really see David praying uh, that God's word would, uh, he would see the truth of God's word for his ignorance. The truth of God's word for his ignorance. Look again at the, at the stanza. Deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live and keep thy word. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. He prays for God here, not to conceal his word, not to keep hidden his will, but to reveal his will. Open thou mine eyes. Hide not thy commandments. Open my eyes so that I may see what you're doing, God. I feel ignorant. I feel confused. I feel uh, in the dark, God. Keep me in your will and open my eyes so that I may see that will. He knows God's commands. He's a man of the word. And yet, even here, he's not sure what God's word means for him in this moment. You see that? He's saying, open mine eyes and hide not your commandments from me. Don't conceal them. Open my eyes so that I can see them. Open my eyes so I can see what your your intentions are, what your word means for me in this moment of life. How often have you prayed that? We know God's word, and yet there's so many times where I can say too that when I'm in a season of confusion or doubt or struggle, it's hard to know how the word of God completely applies to this moment. I know it's true. But sometimes when we have this ignorant feeling like David is, we are often uh, abandoning the word. Because how does the word speak to me? It doesn't, it doesn't talk about my circumstance there's no verse in the Bible, I, I can't find it, that speaks to my situation. <laughs> and We're tempted then to sort of cling to something else other than God's word. And you notice that's not what David did. He clings to God's word regardless of what the way he feels. He feels ignorant even though he knows that these commands are right and true and good for him. And yet he clings to them all the more. He says... Deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live, and keep thy word. He wants to keep and behold, and he wants to see, uh, see the truth and the relevance and the strength of God's word. This was his resource. This was his source of comfort and relief. And he doesn't abandon God's word. He actually doubles down on the assurance of God's word. He is saying that I'm not going to do what everyone else does. I'm not going to do what even perhaps my heart wants to do. I feel ignorant of of my present situation and circumstance. But I'm going to double down on clinging to the scriptures. Because I know that they are true. He wants to keep again. Behold. Understand the word. You know, life's... Troubling days can often sort of cloud our discernment and acknowledgement of God's involvement in our lives. I don't know if that's true for you, but it's true for me that sometimes the the troubling seasons of life sort of of get in the way. And they can sort of uh, cloud, they can sort of fog the way that we see God's hand in our life. We don't see it. We don't notice it. We don't I and mean, we may not know the reason why uh, we are enduring such a moment of grief, a moment of suffering, a moment of hardship, a moment of confusion, a moment where it seems that everything is going wrong. I wish I could tell you all the things that Natalie has endured this last week. There was every single day there was something which we had to uh just throw up our hands and be like, "What are you doing, God?" We're just dealing with a lot of like red tape stuff with DMVs and such. We don't have to bore you with the details. But regardless, it just felt like every single day there was something in which it went the wrong way. And it's it's so easy in moments like that to just throw up our hands and be like, I have no idea what you're doing, God. So I'm just going to try and do it on my own. I'm just going to do it my own way. I'm going to do. I don't know what you're doing, God, but I'm just going to go my own way. Try and do it how I think best. And we don't know the reason for that. I have no idea why He has brought us through a week of which every single day there was something bad happening. Or we don't know why He brings these things in our lives. But we can, and we do know the ultimate purpose for each of our moments, for each of our days, and that is to live and keep God's Word. You know that simple hymn, I think it's by Ron Hamilton, Trust and Obey? It's so simple. That's the essence of the Christian life trusting and obeying and it sounds really simple but it's the hardest thing to put into practice because there's going to be moment after moment in our life where the the world and the forces of satan perhaps are pushing against us trying to remove that trust and trying to get us to disobey That's all he is wanting us to do. We are Christians. If we are sitting in here and believing in the truth of the gospel for us, we are Christians. Which means that Satan can't take away that eternity. But you know what he can do? He can ruin our present. He can ruin our present moment right now. He can't take away your assurance of glory because of the justification you have in Jesus. But he can ruin your sanctification in the present moment by getting you distracted, by getting you to give in to the ignorance that you feel that, God, why are you doing this? He can ruin the present by getting you to not trust and getting you to disobey. But such is what David is praying for. Don't let me do that. Don't let me give in to the ignorance. Uh, deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live, that I may flourish, that I may obey and keep your word. This is the essence of faith. Not knowing what uh, is, is ahead in, in, in the future. You, see, that's what trusting God, trusting God is not about knowing the future, it's about knowing the one who has ordained the future. Oswald Chambers, in his famous devotional, he says, Faith never knows where it is being led, but it loves and knows the one who is leading. That's, I think, what David is praying for. He loves the God who's leading him, but he doesn't know where he's being led. God might not explain what he's doing in our seasons of suffering. We may not know why we were given this illness. We may not know why we were given this hardship, this injury, this, this intense moment of grief. And guess what? That's okay. It's not for us to know. Now that sounds really uh, 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 terse. That sounds really short. That sounds really uh, unapologetic. But this is what it means to be a Christian. We don't have to have a reason why something happens. The reason why is God. And in this moment, he is either teaching us or reminding us either of A, his sovereignty, or B, his sufficiency, or C, all of the above. He's reminding us that we are not in control of our lives. That's something I think that I've been learning more often than not. Yes, even especially through this last week when we were during just silly circumstances. We don't have control as much as we think we do. Probably, actually, it's way far less than we do. When we're given an injury and we're no longer able to play sports the way we do or work the way we love to, or perhaps we're (coughs) given an illness that debilitates us, I think about that in myself. I, I, uh, two years ago or so, I suffered an uh, ACL rupture, and I had to have a surgery on my, my left knee. <laughs> I was a person who would play basketball for hours. I remember I would do that every Wednesday with my friends, just play like three hours a night, just constantly running, going, going, going. Then all of a sudden, sidelined. <laughs> I haven't really been able to play since then. And I think about just how much that shows you don't have control of your life. I have control of your life. You are not your sovereign. I am your sovereign. You are. It's okay to be in this ignorant moment where you think you don't know the way because guess what? God knows the way. He knows the way forward. And he is there always with you. There's this, there's this Episcopal priest. His name is Robert Capon. And he, uh, he says this wonderful line. He was, a, he was an eloquent writer, and he says this, The life of faith is simply the constant willingness to trust that there's another hand that holds our life along with us. That's the life of faith. Realizing that, yes, we may uh, be responsible for our life, we may hold our lives very dearly and very closely, but the life of faith realizes that there's someone even better, even more powerful, even stronger who's holding our life along with us. And that's why it's okay to be ignorant. We may not know the next step. We may be uncertain of the next season of life ahead, but guess what we can be certain about? God who is in that next season. We can be certain of that. This is what the gospel tells us. The gospel's cure for ignorance is not sort of a divine illumination in which we are given uh, knowledge of all of God's secret will. Actually, it's just the gracious information that God is our Savior, and He's there ahead of us. He is preparing the way forward. We don't know the way forward, but he does. This is God's word for our ignorance. Look quickly at verses 18 through 20. We also have David realizing God's word for his isolation. Look at verse 18 again. I open thou mine eyes, that I behold wondrous things out of thy law. I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. David here is confessing his pilgrim spirit, you might say. He says, I'm a stranger in the earth. He doesn't feel at home in this world. He doesn't feel like he belongs. He feels like a stranger. He feels like a foreigner, a nomad, a person without a home. He feels alone. I think such is what Christians are. We are all sojourners in this world, in this life. At home, but not at home. Right where we belong, yes, we are here to glorify God and live as an example to the glory and grace of God. But we are also not home. Because God hasn't remade this world yet. We are part of this world. But even as David here is is expressing, he, he, he is part of this world, but because of his allegiance to his God... There's a natural antagonistic feeling between the world and us. That's natural. That's normal. This is what it means to be uh, one who is uh, a disciple of Christ, one who is devoted to Christ. As soon as you pledge allegiance to the gospel and to the mission of the gospel, as we learn it from the word, we cannot feel at home in this world. We are at odds with the world. They uh, have nothing to say to us that can comfort us or make us feel home because we are strangers in this life. Strangers with the world, yes, but even better, we are friends with God. And so isolation, as David here is kind of expressing, is a natural consequence to allegiance to the Father. It's easy to feel this way. And David is expressing just the feeling that he feels alone, he feels secluded. So alone that he says, my soul breaketh, it aches, it feels crushed under the weight it feels to belong. Under the weight it feels to have company, but also under the weight it feels to long after your judgments, he says. It's crushed under this dual weight and I think that speaks to us because it's easy for us to feel alone. I don't know about you if you struggle with loneliness or you struggle with feeling like you're doing this life on your own. But I think really what I see here is two encouragements for our isolation. And one is just the fact that God's gospel connects us to history. It's so easy, I think, for me, um, and perhaps for you too, to... Uh, to just live in our present, current moment in church history. That this is uh, all of the problems that we are facing right now in the church have never been faced before. And that all of these problems are new and they're, they're, they're going to cause a, a monumental uh, sort of uh, um, breaking of the church. And the church, as we know, is going to fall and crumble. So the problems the church is facing right now, Paul talks about in the first century. They're not new problems. There's always been a quote-unquote another gospel that has come in and tried to deceive people. There's always been false teachers who've wanted to prop themselves up and just preach for money. There's always been problems of infidelity, of, of immorality seeping into the church. The things that we face aren't new problems. And guess what? That also means that the God that we serve isn't sort of a God of just the moment he's a God of the first century Christians and he's a God of 21st century Christians. And the the thing is that when we are pledging our allegiance to the gospel, we are aligning ourselves with those people who were serving the church in the first century. You know, as a Baptist church, we're, we're not like a creedal church in the sense that we recite creeds and such. And that's okay, it's not a problem. But if you read the creeds, like if you read the Apostles' Creed, And we can believe what the Apostles' Creed says. Guess what? You are believing what the church has been believing for thousands of years. You are not alone in this sojourn through the world. You are connected by the gospel to Christians that have lived millennia before you. What an encouragement. That we are standing here because of sacrifices of other men that have gone before us. Last two years ago, excuse me, we celebrated the 500 year anniversary of the Reformation. And it was sort of, it wasn't really inaugurated by this, but we always celebrate the Reformation as if it was inaugurated by Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the church of Wittenberg, Germany. We celebrate that because it is upon that that we are standing now. And even before Luther, we can go back ages and ages and realize the fact that this gospel, the truth that what it clings to is the fact that Jesus is our Savior and he has saved us by grace. In fact, when I was studying for our Sunday night sermon series, which we've kind of had a little break for and it's going to come back on August 11th, but we're going through First Timothy what I realized in First Timothy, the very first thing that the church was attacking was the deity and the sovereignty of Christ. It wasn't even; They hadn't even gotten into the ministry of the church, and already there were people there who were attacking the idea that either God was, um, or that Jesus was God, or that Jesus was just um, too much of a God. They were saying either he was all man or he was all God, and therefore we can't really relate to him automatically the church was faced with this attack of the deity of Christ. And even then, right there, Paul is commissioning Timothy, and you can even go to other writers after him that were later on, like Athanasius and such. They were uh, striving to keep that truth. The truth that God uh, came down in Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man, something that we can't comprehend when you believe the gospel, you are connected to history. A historic faith. But also, secondly, God's gospel connects us to Himself, which is even better than just historic faith, it's connecting us to His person. This is where we get that wondrous phrase in verse 18 where he says, I open my eyes and I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And what are those wondrous things? It's the wonder of the fact that God himself has kept the law for us who broke the law. The wonder of the law is that it is all fulfilled, not by us fulfilling it, but by the person of Christ fulfilling it for us. This is what we are connected to when we are feeling isolated, when we are feeling alone. God's word points us to this, that even though we cannot fulfill the law in any point, we cannot live up to it in any way, it also points us to the Savior who has uh, fulfilled it for us. And even better, who sojourns with us. This is the word for our isolation and quickly, because I'm almost running out of time. <laughs> In the last couple of verses, twenty-one through twenty-four, we have God's word. David realizes God's word for his indignity. Look at verse twenty-one: Thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed, which do err from thy commandments. Remove me from reproach and contempt, for I have kept thy testimonies. Princes also did sit and speak against me. But thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. As we noted in the previous uh, section, uh, David was feeling isolated. He was feeling alone. And that isolation uh, we endured naturally leads to indignant and slanderous remarks that sort of hailed against us from the world. This just essentially means, I think, in these verses that David is in conflict He feels like a foreigner, and that foreign nature uh, makes him feel like he's in conflict with the world. And as David was committing to treasure the Word of God and the God of the Word about everything else, he is surrounded by insults and slanders against him. It says they were reproaching him, and they were dealing with him in contempt. They were sitting and speaking against me, they were conspiring uh, rumors against his reputation. And there will, I think what I, what I kind of see out of this is that, that there will always exist. There will always exist folk who want to deter you and dishearten you from your faith. There will always be someone either in the church perhaps even who is discouraging you in the moment or there will be someone outside of the church discouraging you, deterring you from trying to believe in this word. There will always exist people like that. And these prideful and contemptuous remarks are are going to be difficult to weather at times. David here is saying, just remove me from this moment. (laughs) Remove me from the reproach and the contempt. I feel it. It's it's ever-present with me. But in the midst of all these slights and scant slanders and the scoffing of these proud individuals, David vows to make God's word his meditation. I love what he does, what his answer is. <clears throat> Look at verse 23 again. Princes also did sit and speak against me, but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. He didn't give in to these words. He didn't let these words get him down, but instead he sought to drown out the noise of all the slander with the news of salvation. He thought to, instead of, as as these prideful men were sitting and conspiring against him, he thought that he would, would be better served to sit in God's words. That's kind of what that word means there, where he says, meditate in thy statutes, sit in them, soak in them. Just sit and be still and in the silence consider the words, the statutes, the judgments of God deeply. This is what David's recourse was. Again, as we noted at the beginning, instead of abandoning the word when he was sort of dispirited away from it, here he doubles down on the word. Instead of saying, because of the reproach I've been uh, attacked with, because of my affinity for the word, instead of abandoning it, I'm going to double down on it. I'm okay with that reproach. I'm okay with being treated with contempt if that contempt comes because I'm serving Jesus. He reaffirms his devotion here despite being ridiculed for that devotion. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to sit in these statues, these testimonies. And as he prayed for at the beginning, that deep, close intimacy, he's going to say here, I want them to be my delight, my counselors. I want these words of God to be my source of direction, my source of joy, my source of sufficiency and sustenance. I want them to be what they are, which is they are everything. Everything. He didn't listen to those evil counselors that were outside of him. <clears throat> he listened to the true and the better and the wise counselor that was before him. That was above him. That was actually on his side. That's what he's listening to. He's not listening to the words of the world that try and treat him with indignity, with slanderous remarks, with, with contempt and with evil. He's Considering and sitting in God's truth. God's truth which says to us, you are mine. He's sitting in that truth. He's making that his counselor. So we can be okay when suffering slander because we know that this world is not ours in the, in, in, in the first place. We don't have to protect it by trying to protect our reputations. We can be okay with being slandered because we know God's word has a better word for us. Not that we are remarkable, but that we are justified and redeemed because of him. This is the word he's sitting in. This is God's word. It's his word in every single season. A season of indignity when he's feeling slandered. A season of isolation when he feels alone. And a season of ignorance when he feels that he doesn't know the way. It's God's word in every season. It's God's word for our season. Let us pray.